Hello and welcome to April's Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. This month we've got an Irving Welsh special. He'll be talking about his new book, A Decent Ride, in which he's back on home turf, delivering us into the terrifying hands of one of his most compelling and popular characters, Juice Terry Lawson. The book also introduces us to another band of cult status, Wee Jonty Mackay, a man with the genitals and brain of a donkey. Unsurprisingly, it's his funniest and filthiest book yet. We'll be talking about the book, politics and Irvin's writing career, but before then, here's an extract from the audiobook. You'll never guess where I had in my cab the other day. Juice Terry Lawson explains, his solid build contained by a luminous green tracksuit. His luxuriant corkscrew curls lash wildly in the gale that slaps up against the side of the Perspex barrier, winding from the airport concourse to a bank of parked taxicabs. Terry stretches, rips out a yawn, Sleeves riding up to expose gold chains at the wrists and two forearm tattoos. One is of a harp that looks like an egg slicer. With Hibernian FC and 1875 scrolled above and below. The second is of a fire-breathing dragon, which offers the world a lavish wink, inviting it in winding letters beneath to Let the Juice Loose. Terry's mate, Doheed, a thin, asthmatic-looking man, gazes blankly in response. He sparks up a fag and wonders how much of it he can suck back before he has to deal with the approaching plane load of passengers, jostling their luggage-laden carts towards him down the enclosed ramp. That can offy the telly, Terry confirms, scratching his balls through the polyester. Where's that? Doheed mumbles, sizing up the piled suitcases of a huge Asian family. He's willing a distracted man who struts behind to overtake them on the ramp, so that he won't have to load the many bags into the cab. Let Terry get that one. The man wears a long cashmere coat, open over a dark suit, white shirt and tie, with black framed glasses and, most strikingly, a mohawk haircut. The man suddenly sprints ahead of the pack, and Doheed's spirit sore. Then he stops dead and looks at his watch as the Asian family trundle past him all over Doheed like a rash. Please, please, quickly, please, please, a cajoling patriarch calls as buckshot rain suddenly lashes against the perspex. Teddy watches his friend struggle with the cases. That stand-up boy on Channel 4. He was riding that bird, what's her name, tidy fucking body on it. He traces an hourglass, then steps up snugly against the perspex barrier for shelter. But as Doheed strains and grunts with the cases, Terry regards the bespectacled man in the long coat, his incongruous hair blowing everywhere in the wind, fingers delivering heavy number punches into his phone. Terry recognises him from somewhere a band, perhaps, then sees that he's older than the haircut suggests. Suddenly, a cowed associate appears, blonde hair shorn above a tense face, cautiously standing alongside him. 
I'm so sorry, Ron. The car we had ordered broke down. Get out of my sight! The punk businessman, for this is how Terry now thinks of him, barks in an American accent. I'll take this goddamn taxi. Just have my bags delivered to my hotel room. The punk businessman doesn't even make eye contact through his pink-tinted lenses with Terry before climbing into the back of his cab and slamming the door shut. His shamed associate stands in silence. Terry gets into the cab and keys the ignition. Where is it you're gone, chief? What? The punk businessman looks over his light-reactive glasses into the back of a mop of curls. Terry pivots round in the seat. Where do you want me to take you to? The punk businessman is aware that this corkscrew-headed taxi driver is talking to him as if he, the punk businessman, is a child. Fucking Mortimer. Can't see the anything. Puts me through this BS. His hand tightens on the straps of the cab. He swallows tightly. Balmoral Hotel. The Immoral. Good choice, mate, Terry replies, his mind spinning through the database of the sexual encounters he's enjoyed there, usually during two discreet periods on the calendar. There was nothing like the International Festival in August and Edinburgh's Hogmanay for adding garnish to his basic diet of scheme minge and jaded porn performers. So what line of work is it you're in? Irvin, thank you so much for coming in. Um, you have been bombing around the country, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, around several of them. I've been to Germany, to Scotland, to England, uh, go to Ireland at the weekend, and I go to Italy. So it's kind of been uh, a bit crazy. A whirlwind. Some of this has been undertaken in a black cab. Little bit of it. Um, I've noticed pictures on social media of you being squired around by your own creation, Juice Terry. Yeah, I've had a couple of Juice Terry's. I had my mate Jimmy Anderson uh, up in uh, Scotland who was taking me around central Scotland to some of the bookstores. He was he makes a good Juice Terry. Um, and uh, then down here in London, I had Disco Dave who was um, kind of uh, taking me around. He's a great Juice Terry as well. So, so it, was, uh, it was fabulous. Okay, tell us what makes a great Juice Terry. I mean, obviously you do. He's your fictional creation. You've brought him back to life for a decent ride. Tell us about him. I think he's got to be mobile. So he started off on the juice lorries going around the scheme and now he has a taxi. And uh, anywhere he can roll down a window and shout at people in the streets, usually moon. And kind of, um, I think that's his kind of, his forte, you know, so he needs to be mobile. No good just sitting and waiting for the women to go by it's him. No he's got to go and go. Okay. So we're homing in on the fact that he's not what we might call a politically correct character. Right? He's not really. I mean, I, I don't think he's misogynistic because uh, he kind of puts women on a pedestal in a sense that um, he's only, you know, he can't relate to men at all. He doesn't really sort of get on with other men. Um, he's. Uh, but I think, I mean, I've, I've got the kind of um, the feeling he actually wants to be a woman. I've not really kind of explored that thing about him yet, but that's the kind of um, that's the kind of sort of inkling that Halliburton is about. It. That's the lightning that's broken. Perhaps it could be, yeah, it could be um, a sort of post-operative juice time, just to reason. 
just tell us what he does get up to in this book. What's what's happening? Well, he kind of starts off by it's kind of that great cataclysmic event that changed Scottish society forever. Uh, Hurricane Bobag um, hits hits Scotland, and he's um, he gets immersed in the lives of two very different people. He gets immersed in this the life of this American reality TV star kind of slash businessman. Um, and he gets immersed in the life of this guy, Wee Jaunty, who's uh, a kind of very uh, a guy is a guy who's just basically gone feral. He's kind of slipped through the cracks and he lives in his own. He's basically a kind of um, he lives with his girlfriend, and something's happened to his girlfriend, and Terry gets immersed in this kind of whole world. Uh, so it's um, so it's kind of uh, there's a, there's a kind of strong kind of even even though it's very character driven, there's a very kind of sort of narrative kind of sort of plot to it as well. So in some ways, it is a sort of Examination of Scotland, kind of now or now ish. Yeah, I mean, through my kind of twisted lens, if you call kind of what I write about Scotland, I mean, I write about a very kind of um, hyper real place in my head, which kind of uh, some people seem to say this this is what Scotland is exactly like. Other people seem to go, no, no, you know, and that's exactly as it should be. You know, it should be any country should be a house in many different rooms. Uh, so it's um, it's my kind of take on where things are, where things were a few years ago. What's also interesting, of course, is that you are writing these books from not Scotland. You, you live elsewhere. Mobility has been pretty key to your whole writing career. You split your time now, don't you, between Chicago and Miami? Yeah, I've still got a place in Edinburgh, though, and I'm back there maybe kind of two or three months in the year, so I get back three or four times a year. Um, I was back for a couple of days this this time, but you know, and, and people know about it because you're there to promote a book, but most of the time when I come back, I'm just going to come coming in quietly and hanging out and doing a bit of writing and seeing friends and family and stuff like that. So I do get over quite a lot, um, and I don't. So as a result of that, and I don't really feel kind of exiled or cut off from it in the same way that you would be otherwise. Uh, and um, I think if I if I if it gets to the you know the, the if I get to the situation where I no longer kind of want to travel so much, it might start to kick in a bit more then, but. Right now, I still feel very kind of uh, connected with things there. Obviously, uh, all eyes were on Scotland uh, a few months ago during the independence debate on Vogue, and it must be fantastically interesting to you to note uh, how much this current UK election is being inflected by Scottish politics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's the the thing is that um, it's an interesting thing because Scotland is kind of um, it's kind of exiting itself in the UK and also at the same time kind of being pushed out the door. So it's a sort of um, it's a weird relationship it has and it's um I think that this I think from a, from an English point of view, I mean and I have kind of lived here in England, you know, most most of my adult life longer than I have in Scotland. I think from an English point of view, you really kind of um, want to get Scotland dealt with as soon as possible and get it out the door, basically, because it threatens to become a kind of running sore on British politics and won't, you know, and, it, it, and to have that kind of stasis where things can't even move forward without that resolution of um, the kind of Scottish sort of the whole uh, question of Scottish sovereignty, I think it's not going to do anybody any good in the long run. I think it's interesting now, it's got politics picking up again, but I think in the long run it's, some, it's an issue that needs to be resolved, and I think it can only be kind of resolved one way. Um, but, but I think. The, the, the fear from the, the establishment here's fear is that if you resolve it in that way, then you open a whole different kind of set of relationships up to England. I mean, England then has 
wants to have its moment, you know, it's kind of um, it's big kind of democratic renaissance, which kind of Scotland really had with the referendum debate. Tell us a little bit about life in the States and how that has affected your work. I mean, obviously your last novel, Sex Lives of Siamese Twins, which was set in Miami, was really very much interested in American culture and celebrity culture and TV in America. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously with that novel, I mean, it was really kind of me... Um, I suppose trying to come to terms with, uh, with you know, with America and with um, with American life and American issues in you know in Miami and uh, you know, looking at it from the point of view. I mean, I wrote a novel called called Crime, which was set in Miami, but that was very much um, a Scottish guy in Miami, a kind of sort of um, the kind of fish out of water story. This is me kind of more trying to get to grips with American culture itself and feeling more comfortable with it to write about it. Um, so I think you do you do kind of uh, engage with where you're at, you know, you, you kind of do move, you know, but um, saying that, I mean, I'm always drawn to writing about Scotland because I think it's, um, you're, if you're formed by a place, I mean, I, you know, where I grew up and your, you know, your, your neighbourhood that you live in, your family, your friends and all that, that's the kind of big deterministic influence in your life. I think you just, um, you might have different... Um, Kind of, uh, you know, you might have different things you take an interest in, but you you're formed as a person, you're formed as a writer by these other experiences. I think. I think you also, when you began writing and when Train Spotting came out, to immense acclaim and really set you on your your way in such a kind of spectacular sort of way, there was a huge outward flowering of Scottish literature, wasn't there? Like the vo- the Scottish voice, and I wondered. How important that was to you, whether you would have been a different kind of writer if that hadn't been happening, and also where it sort of stands now. Um, I think it's uh, it, you know it was a big thing, and I think that um, strangely enough, you know, and it, it kind of went global as well. Then, you know, I mean, it's like you had the New York Times coming to talk about the Scottish Beats and uh, myself and um, you know Alan Warner and uh, you know sort of uh, Barry Graham and Gordon Legg and uh, Laura Howard and all that. There's a big thing about it all. Um, and I think now, arguably, you know, there's actually more interesting, you know, just just as interesting and diverse writers now, but having gone global, you know, you've got people uh, like Ewan Morrison, Louise Welsh, Alan Bissett, uh, Dougie Johnson, um, Zoe Strack, and all these, all that bunch of people were kind of... Um, you know, they're arguably more diverse than, than we were as a group in a lot of ways. Uh, but there isn't any, there isn't that kind of same internationalisation of it, which in some ways has made it stronger, I think. In some ways it's got a strong local kind of writing scene. Uh, there's also a massive, um, a big music scenes in there, there are big uh, visual art scenes, fantastic visual artists now, yeah. And it is um, very noticeable, the extent to which you have stuck with your career i mean you are a really prolific writer and you've also both gone forward into different directions and been aware of your own own canon of, of work so you've gone back as with this book as with skag boys to train spotting that that sort of uh that, that kind of omnidirectional uh nature seems to be pretty important to you yeah i mean i think you've got um you've got the the, the tremendous freedom with the blank page and uh you know, you can look at, you know, you, you, you carve out an area of interest for yourself and you go back to it because it's interesting to you. But 
there's also it gives you the opportunity to get into other things as well. You know, and I need to do these these two things. I mean, I need to write a book that I know is going to, in some ways, be a big commercial success because you're you know you're, you're regurgitating characters and themes that people are familiar with and people like the familiar. Like you like kind of you like a kind of branding. You like to buy into the same idea of characters recurring. Uh, but also, I mean, I, I couldn't just do that too. I have to move on to, to do other things and look at um, and look at other characters and look at other scenarios as well. So, um, and it's just it's the same. You know, I, you know, I can't just do books. I have to do film as well, and I have to do kind of stage stuff as well occasionally, just to kind of mix it up and, and to keep uh, yourself interested. To keep myself interested and to get the opportunity to work with other people and learn as well. You know, and it's, I mean, every time you do, um, if you do a film or if you do a stage play. You've got a massive learning opportunity because you're working with other people. Your style, just tell us a little bit about that. It's dirty, it's funny, it's kind of rude. Do you think it's changed a lot? Do you want it to change? Um, not really. I mean, I think that uh, I like to get characters who are having a bad time, you know, they're having this sort of um, the bereavement or the relationship breakdown or the drug addiction or the, um, the mental illness. I mean, they're not going to be like that all the time. but. You get them at a point where they're making bad decisions and they're doing crazy things, and um, people doing crazy things is fantastically interesting <laughs> in fiction. You know, you don't want to be around it in your life, but because um, it could be quite kind of scary and quite and quite horrible. But um, in fiction, it's great because it's like uh, you can look at it and you can abstract it. You can hopefully kind of learn from it from the, you know the, the lessons that real life throws up. He does have a pretty bad time in many ways. Just tell. Just tell you, maybe not as bad as we John to. <laughs> and on that tantalising note, we'll leave it to your readers to discover exactly what does happen. Thank you so much, Irvin, for joining us. Thanks very much, Alex. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Books podcast, and many thanks to my special guest this month, Irvin Welsh. If you've missed any episodes of the Vintage podcast or would like to listen again, you can find all our episodes on our website, www.vintage-books. .co.uk. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love to know what you think, so if you have two minutes, please give us a rating or leave a comment. Until next time, goodbye.